You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Greetings. Uh, I'm Jim Finley. Welcome to Turning to the Mystics. Welcome, everyone, to Season 8 of Turning to the Mystics where we've been turning to the German mystic, Mechthild of Magdeburg, a student of Eckhart's. And I'm here with Jim, and we're going to talk together about Jim's third session. Um, and so welcome, Jim. Thank you, yes. Thank you, glad to be continuing on with Mechthild. She's so, such a beautiful mystic to study, so. Yes, and I absolutely loved the third session and uh, I read along with the text, and I, I was curious, you chose three different parts of the book and pulled them together for that episode. I, I was wondering what the thread is there. Yes, my sense is this, of course, in the whole series of Turning to the Mystics, we're really not studying the, the thought of any mystic. You know, for example, if we would do St. John of the Cross, when I did the contemplative prayer group with St. Monica's, I'd spend a year on one mystic. So if we were going to do John of the Cross, we would have done a whole year, which would be a very worthwhile thing to do. But what we're doing is just singling out beautiful passages that shed light on helping us deepen our experience of God's presence in our life. And so I, I'm choosing, that's one criteria for choosing these passages. And the second criteria is for me, is in terms, I try to choose passages that are as, as accessible as possible, and that we can resonate with the dimensions of love she's talking about. And so it has to do with that pastoral practicality in terms of, of following this path and ways we can recognize what she's talking about. We get reverberations of it within ourself. And, uh, you know. Oh, lovely. Well, I'm looking forward to digging in to the passages you chose. And so, if it's okay with you, Jim, we'll turn to the first one that you read, which was from book two, and it starts at the very bottom of page 91. Yes. And I wondered if we could just go through some of the sentences and phrases. They're all so deep, and it would be nice to, to hear your reflections. Reading the first one, yes. Lord Heavenly Father, between you and me there goes unceasingly an imperceptible breath in which I come to know and see many marvels and inexpressible things. Here she's, uh, I think, poetically uh, bearing witness to uh, the imagery of the breath where uh, God is perpetually like exhaling the infinity of God, the very reality of God, like exhaling in a self-donating act, uh, exhaling out as the gift and the miracle of our very presence in our nothingness without God. Then deep within us, there is also, God breathes into us the capacity to recognize that and exhale ourselves back into the breath of God. Mm. And that, that, that point varies, that communion, is like a foundational, uh, abyss-like unit of reality that, we're, uh, that is the reality of ourself and God. So she's saying that is the reality of ourself between us. And then she's saying that in this whole, and this is what her whole book's about. Her whole book is following a path of love 
in which that reciprocity of love becomes more and more explicit. And she's inviting us to follow that path too, because although it's always there from God, like right now God's exhaling herself as us being present to this talk. But we're not necessarily always exhaling ourselves as a gift to God. Mm-hmm. You know, we waver. And so she's trying to draw us towards a more unwavering constancy of the constancy of love that's always sustaining us in our inconsistencies. And so that's kind of what she's setting up here, I think, poetically. Yeah. And the next sentence, this is another theme that comes through the passages you chose. Unfortunately, they do me little good because I am such a worthless vessel that cannot endure your slightest spark. You know, whenever the mystics talk this way, like I, I, uh, I'm a worthless vessel. Thomas Merton once said in a conference at the monastery, he said, we should never confuse spiritual truths by interpreting them psychologically. For example, humility is not an inferiority complex. So when she says, I'm a worthless vessel, you don't get the feeling at all that she's walking around feeling like a worthless person. Mm -hmm. She feels like she's very present. But rather she's in touch with a certain fallenness or a certain propensity for weakness that's within us all in this exiled state. But she's, uh, she's sensitive to that spiritually. But as a confident, clear-minded, love-filled woman, and she's inviting us to model that also. Yeah, well, that, that's, that's helpful to understand that difference. Yeah, because in reading it, it can feel like low self-esteem in a way to, to speak about yourself like that. But um, we'll unpack that a little bit more in the next section, I think. Yeah. So then she goes on to talk about this unbound love. Unbound love dwells in the senses because it is still mixed in such a way with earthly things that a person can cry out, love is in grace, distant in the senses, and has, alas, not yet climbed atop the soul. So let's say, I want to use married love as an example. She's one of these nuptial mystics, too. That's the primary metaphor, nuptial love is that two people fall in love and they marry because they've fallen in love. But what they also discover in their years together, that their love for each other is unbound and that it wavers. There's withholding, there's resentment, there's indifference, there's uh, a lack of caring, there's a lack of, and they bring it in, they bring it in like this. And they have to discover they need to do love's work because it's unbound. It wavers and drifts. And so they're always doing love's work to mature, to stabilize in the ways of love. So she's saying this unbound love with God, it dwells in the senses. It dwells in the senses in this sense. It dwells in the senses in that if I'm not capable of being gratified in the senses with the consolations of God or the felt sense of God, I, I, I don't think God's anywhere around. Mm. And if I'm not gratified, like, why do it? And so it's, it's unbound from the infinite love of God because it's so bound up in monitoring how gratified I am in my finite senses. And so she's trying to point that out about how we're all walking around in this state because she's going to show us the path to be healed from mm-hmm. unbound love. So she's saying we're all like, we're all, in various ways, we're all like. And yet in the hidden center of ourself, the, the, the breath of love is there. Mm-hmm. But it's buried under the unbound waywardness 
of things. And we're trying to find our way to that oneness in the breath, the breath of love. And Jim, would it be true to say that the, the moments, whether it's between uh, a married couple, siblings, parent and child or friends, that those moments when, we, when we're reactive, we've lost touch with how much we love the person and how much the person loves might love us. And we're just kind of caught in our sensory reactivity or misreading the situation. Yes, I, th I think so. But I'd like to say this as a therapist too, like couples therapy. See, we are reactive. I was once attending a course with Maureen on uh, instructions on doing couples therapy. Mm -hmm. yeah. And they said to help married couples uh, argue effectively. Mm. They should always, when the person says something in anger, they should always say something like, I hear you saying. And he said, this works very fine if you're St. Francis or Mother Teresa Calcutta. <laughs> but the trouble is, <laughs> you know, you get ticked off. Yeah. Yeah. So we do get reactive, but here's the point. I get reactive, but realizing I got reactive, let's talk about it. And by the willingness to bring out into the open the reactivity, like read between the lines and walk with it, being very careful that the tone of voice and what you say will have the best possible chance of eliciting the response you're hoping for, which is empathy, insight. And so really the tripping places, reactivities, are actually the growing places. Mm. And the trouble is often we, we're, we're reluctant to do the hard work of talking about the tripping places, and they can build up inside of us yes. as unspoken distances and, and so on. And then she said there's something very similar between ourselves and God. And, a kind of uh, becoming disheartened by our slow progress or disheartened by our indifference, whatever. But instead of bringing it to God and listening to God speak to us about being infinitely in love with us and our brokenness, we walk around and just like drift away. So she's trying to find a way to see where unbound love has within it doorways to this deeper bound love by learning to recognize those places. Well, let's read what she has to say about the bound love. She says on page 92, Bound love dwells in the soul and transcends human senses and concedes the body nothing it wants. It is restrained and very calm. It lowers its wings and listens for the inexpressible voice and gazes into the incomprehensible light and works with great desire to achieve the will of the Lord. Very poetic, but let's look at it kind of. I think she's so good at uh, bearing, helping us to sit with the poetics of the subtle ways of love. You know, she's so unhurried and clear about it. We need to sit with her imagery to get it. So let's say this. I want to pick up with this thing about the soul lowering its wings. I want to start there. Let's say this, what's it mean to lower our wings? I think it means this. Any attempt that I make to ascend by my own powers, like to open my wings and fly to you, any attempt on my finite powers to ascend to you, uh, fails to, to understand the nature of the situation. Because the nature of the situation is this. When it comes to your love for me, 
There is nothing in my power, by my finite powers, to find my way to your love. But nor do I need to, because your infinite love has already found its way to me as the beloved in my finite powers. So the very fact that I even think I need to fly to you by my powers fails to grasp you're already within me, infinitely in love with me, in the inadequacy of my finite powers. Mm. And so it's... it's uh, so if I'm the very fact that I'm I, I'm not capable of doing I'm power just like I'm powerless to bring myself into existence and I'm powerless to keep myself in existence by virtue of death I'm absolutely powerless to be anything other than infinitely loved by you and my powerlessness and that's really what I think what she's what she's getting at here. She goes on to say, if the body can still flap its wings, the soul can never reach the heights that are attained for human beings. In this bound love, the wounded soul becomes rich and her external seems very poor because the more riches God's, God finds in her, the deeper she humbly lowers herself because of the true nobility of her love. Let's say this is also a very subtle thing. Mm -hmm. She's talking about the body. So let's say in a kind of ego-based experience of our own body that anything that we can bodily achieve through bodily effort is, is uh, very limited or impoverished compared to seeing how the body embodies the love of the beloved. Mm. Because if the body embodies the love of the beloved, this is what yoga is all about the namaste, uh, the yogi, we're yoked to God in our body, it's incarnate infinity intimately realized in the body. But this requires a kind of settling in to the deeper recesses of our body that embodies this love. Mm. And going beyond superficial, uh, possessive attitudes towards our own body. And she's, and she's saying something else or two in the light of this too, is that she says, it lowers its wings and listens for the inexpressible voice. See? And so it's like you're listening for the voice that is heard in ways it's not expressed. I'd like to respect on that, respect on that in just a minute. This has a lot to do with psychotherapy too. In an intimate conversation with the lover, the beloved, the friend, whatever, there's what the beloved says. Uh, but the more you love the person, the more you can hear in what they're saying the unexpressed thing. Mm. Either because they themselves are not yet ready to share it, or they themselves are not yet consciously aware that it's there, and you're kind of intuiting it. See? Um, but you, you, you hear this deeper unexpressed love expressing itself in the, in the love that is expressed. And a lot of psychotherapy is that way too, like this layering of listening where you, you're, you're in the presence of someone, the therapist, who invites you over and over to pause and listen at the feeling level to what you just said. Mm. And we're always skimming over the surface. The said word hides the unsaid, this begging and waiting to come out into the open, which is intimacy. Mm -hmm. So that's a lovely little subtle thing about this. And another way to put it too, with creation, 
is uh, if, if we're talking about the living word of God speaking the whole universe into existence. You know, I shared that when I sit at the monastery, I used to sit in prayer and I would try to sit so quiet that I could hear God speaking me and the whole world into being. See, because God is speaking the whole world. So I, can I become so quiet that I could hear this unexpressed word being expressed as my breath, my life, the sun moving across the sky. So she's alluding to these subtle kinds of listening and, and hearing of this. And, and secondly, then she uses the imagery of light and gazes into the incomprehensible light. You're gazing into the depths of what's incomprehensible. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness grasps it not. Although the darkness can't grasp it, the darkness can sit and wait and surrender to it, and the light shines through the darkness that it can't grasp. So it's like seeing, uh, shining th through the light, the unseen light of God, and it's like hearing in the words, the un unexpressed word. And so she's these layerings of subtle union where union occurs, and she's trying to help us learn to be sensitized like this. You know. Can you talk about what she means uh, when she says, uh, in this bound love, the wounded soul becomes rich? What's the wounding? Here's how I saw it, too. Each of the listeners could share what they see in it, too, because it's, in, it's intentionally evocative. Mm -hmm. I see it. Here's what I see in it, thinking about it. In this bound love, that is, this each unto each, in this deep love. In this bound love, the wounded soul becomes rich. And so the soul is wounded in the acceptance of its woundedness. That's one way it's wounded. And then it discovers in the acceptance of its woundedness is the irrelevancy of its woundedness and that loves infinitely in love with it and its woundedness. That mm. as long as we're attributing authority to our woundedness, it's the idolatry of conditioned states. Over the love that loves us so unexplainably in the midst of unresolved things like this. And there's another meaning to it, too, I think, in it to me. The wounded soul becomes rich, becomes rich in this sense that the wounded soul has been wounded by an unconsummated longing. That is, this, that this infinite love of God has made a move on us and touched us with the love that we're powerless to consummate. And so in this sense, we're wounded this way. This is why when we're looking at St. John of the Cross, where he's praying to God out of this woundedness, and he said, it's not fair that you do not carry off this heart that you have stolen, for I live not where I live. See? But in the acceptance of the woundedness, the woundedness is healed, and actually enters into us through that wound. Mm. And of course, this is gonna have allusions to the cross later, and the mystery of the cross, and death, and love, and so I think it's a very loaded poetic thing on the two sides of this woundedness. Mm -hmm. uh, St. John of the Cross says, when we're physically burned by physical fire, the cure is to put uh, uh, something cool on it. But when it comes to the fire of God's love, the cure is more fire. Mm. So here the woundedness is to deepen the wound. Because the deepening of the wound opens out upon the abyss of the love that's taking us to itself in the woundedness which is the gift of tears or the gift of uh, divinization through love. Yeah. So in, in this bound love, it's, it's an experience of oneness with God's love for us beyond the senses. It's, it's happening outside of the senses. Yes, and also another big, big thing too. 
I can deepen in this bound love, mm -hmm. in the midst of the deep acceptance of my yet unbound love. Mm. St. Paul, I have a thorn in the flesh, and I ask God to remove it. And God says, leave it there, it's your teacher. See? Because the, all of us have something. Thomas Byrne once said, we're all walking around with a secret little list in our heart. Once I learn to stop doing this and this and this, God and I will really get serious. He said, the thing to realize with God, there's no list. And he said, why do we have that list? We can't bear being unconditionally loved. We can only bear being conditionally loved because there's no control in unconditional love. So the idea is it's true, I can't help myself. I catch myself attributing authority to a shortcoming. You do it, I do it, we all do it. But what we're realizing is that although we're doing that, attributing authority to the shortcoming, trying to lean into this love where it's irrelevant, the irrelevancy of our shortcoming has already begun to occur mm. see, because we're being taken to God in the midst of not being able to get past our shortcomings. And uh, that's the strange arrival place, I think. Mm. Beautiful. Yeah. The last little bit she says is, I cannot imagine a person bound by the deepest stirrings of powerful love falling into serious sin, for the soul is bound and has to love. May God thus bind us all. I think what it means is to me, what, like what, what would serious sin mean? It isn't just that I would commit a sin because I'm sinful, nor is it that I'd be incapable of a grievous sin. In a moment of, we I mean, who knows, life's complicated. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I'd be incapable of committing a grievous sin, that which grievously violates the mystery of love. Mm. I'd be incapable of doing it and not be devastated by my choice. Mm. See? I might do it. I might do it. But I'd be incapable. And, and being devastated by the unloving thing that I did that love takes me to itself and the, dev and the devastating thing that I did and what my devastation. And, and this is why sometimes someone once said about Thomas Merton that he was a gentle man because God was so gentle with him. Mm. And sometimes uh, it's in the deep acceptance of wayward, foibled ways that the love gets deeper and deeper and deeper like this. This is, has a lot to do with deep therapy too and also recovery from addiction has a lot to do with this. So in a way serious sin is um, doing something that goes against this stream of love, perhaps doing it intentionally, but but also um, not not taking responsibility or not reconciling it. Th that's or not. right. Yeah, that's right. And I think there's another. Maybe we did the serious thing, mm -hmm. and maybe we 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 didn't care. We're glad we did it, but then you have to look closer at what that's about. Was there a hurt that went so deep, like a traumatized? Internalized trauma that you acted out that in an anger. They say just beneath the anger <coughs> is the pain, and just beneath the pain is the powerlessness. So sometimes when there's all this bravado of brushing forward and, and doing it, if you look really deeper, and uh, there's the pain inside, mm. and then there's the powerlessness to free oneself from the pain, and. Uh, and so the more one can unpack all of this, again, spiritual sobriety and insight and wisdom about the ways of the human heart. Yeah. It's like, gee, another big example with all these mystics is the crucifixion of the good thief being crucified with Christ. See, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
this day you'll be with me in paradise. So he didn't say to the thief, it all depends, let's have a look. I don't know. You know, it's not a free ride, you know. And uh, he, he's not, he doesn't even care. The prodigal son, the son coming back, he's making up a list to be admitted. Father doesn't even want to hear, puts a ring on his finger. Abba. And so we're trying to, and St. Paul says, if this is true, does that mean we would sin all the more? Like a blank check on sin? Yeah, yeah. He said, God forbid, because if God loves us this way, it makes the mystery of sin all the more mysterious and dark and regretful that we would live by love and not by that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's helpful. Yeah. So, Jim, let's now turn to the next section that you read from the book, and that started on page 225 in book six, about half, uh, well into section one. And we're going to start uh, at the top of page 226. Right. When a person purely for the love of God and not for earthly reward, instructs the ignorant, converts sinners, consoles the despondent, and brings those in despair back to God, then he is God the Spirit with the Holy Spirit. That is a very blessed person who does everything humanly possible that is praiseworthy in God's eyes with that same love for God's praise and with the constant good intention of his whole heart. That person is one whole person with the Holy Trinity. So here I, I think this is important because she's bearing witness to the importance and reality of the deeply good person mm-hmm. who has committed himself, committed herself to this path of love and for the love of God to do for love's sake. Uh, what can I do to be helpful? How can I walk this walk and be someone whose presence in the world makes the world a better place to be? We should be very grateful for those people in our lives and grateful for those times in the ways in which we're able to be like that. Mm-hmm. Too. So she's acknowledging that and the importance of that. Okay, next paragraph though. But But the dust of sin that settles upon us constantly, even against our will, is quickly annihilated by the fire of love when the glance of the eyes of our soul touches the Godhead with the lonely sighing of of sweet desire that no creature can resist. When she begins to rise, the dust of sin falls away from her and she becomes one God with God in such a way that whatever he wills, she wills as well. And they can be united in complete union, no other way. Okay, good. This is a lovely phrase about the dust of sin. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a lovely phrase. I want to say Master Dogen, he said this in the language of the Buddha. I'm going to put it in Christian language. Uh, He said the whole mystery of who we are in God's love is entirely beyond the world's dust. And he says, therefore, how can there be a means to brush it clean? What he uses any effort to dust it clean? Because the whole mystery is already beyond all of that. And I think this is a poetic way of saying what she's saying here. And also notice that sin settles upon us constantly, even against our will. Seventy times, seven times a day, uh, you know, the waywardness of fumbling around this and that goes on and on. You have your story, I have mine. I'm probably on our deathbed, still at it, you know, maybe. 
even against our will, but is quickly annihilated by the fire. So it goes this way. If I'm, if I'm walking around uh, weighing my understanding of where I am in the presence of God, based on my ability to measure up to who I sense I deep down really am and God wants me to be, I'm, I, I get discouraged. You know, I get really discouraged. If I attribute authority to of the unresolved matters of my heart, of all the compromises. But what if instead, by the way, when I do that, there's a certain kind of hubris in it, is that I'm attributing power. For my weaknesses is more powerful than the infinite love that loves me in my weaknesses. But if I renew my awareness with God's grace of the infinite love that infinitely loves me in my weaknesses, then the very moment of the tripping place itself, deeply accepted, uh, sin that settles on us constantly, even against our will, is quickly annihilated by the fire of love when the glance of the eyes of our soul touches the Godhead with a lonely sighing and sweet desire. I look up and to see God looking at me, and in our gaze, he's looking at me with a boundaryless love. And in the gaze, when my gaze meets God's gaze, the imagined substance of my failing dissolves. Mm. And the failing then is almost then a deepening of the love. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, 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 this compunction, this deep sense of being constantly renewed in, in the love of the brokenness itself. And is this, Jim, what she was meaning by when the soul lowers her wings and the body lowers the lowers its wings. See, because look what happens. If I stumble and fall, I say I really did in some way. I was indifferent or, I mean, whatever. But then I think I did fall. But by my own efforts, I want to open my wings and reinstate my ability. See? Then I'm still caught in the, in the confusion of not understanding the ways of love. But if instead of trying to open my wings, I renew my awareness of the irrelevancy of doing so, because it's finite. Likewise, my failings are finite compared to the infinite love that infinite loves me in my failings, and my virtues are finite compared to the infinite love that loves me and permeates and transcends my virtues. So she's trying to come to this mystical sense of an identity born of this infinite, in, incarnate infinity intimately realized. So it doesn't mean that I don't act, but I act out of this. So that somehow when I do act, I'm incarnating this love in my action. And then when I speak, I am speaking, but it's God speaking through me in love. And God's using me to achieve her own purposes in the world by my sincere efforts to lean into the task at hand kind of divested of monitoring where I'm at in it, but only how God can, I can be ever more subtle in the presence of God channeling through my efforts. That's the subtlety of this, I think. Yeah. And just like most of the mystics we've read, she talks about this sweet desire. Is that how we turn towards God? We, we kind of tap into our desire for love, to be loving, to experience love. Yeah, that's very good. I'll put it this way. We're looking at Julian, too, on this also. 
is that our desire for God is a finite echo of God's infinite desire for us. And so the sweet desire is sweet because when I turn towards God, I see the sweet, the sweetness of God's infinite desire for me. It's given to me as my feeble desire for this love, which shines through the feebleness of my love and consummates this union. That's my sense of it. Uh, there's another way that I would put it too, I think. Um, that you look at any, when we love somebody very, very, very much, lover, spouse, friend, brother, sister, uncle, community of people, whatever it is. Uh, see, how, define that person, define that act, define that community, which when you give yourself over to it with your whole heart, it unravels your petty preoccupations with your self-absorbed self and brings you strangely home to yourself. That's love. And so that's what's so impossible if we try to read her in linear consciousness, mm -hmm. as if she's defining something. Yeah. She's not defining anything. Mm -hmm. She's poetically letting a light shine with words that embody what words can't say. But insofar as our heart's been quickened by love, we know what she's talking about. And that's how she's mentoring us. She, she's guiding us and habituating ourselves in this. And also, we can be reunited in complete union and in no other way. What's that mean? You know, there's only, there is no other way. But for me to let you take me infinitely to yourself in the unending nature of my incompleteness, there's no other way. Mm. And once I surrender over and roll with that, you know, it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's holiness maybe, I don't know. Yeah, it's so encouraging that our foibles and the, the things that we feel like we get wrong can be quickly annihilated by the fire of love if we if we lean into the desire to have done it better to have been more loving to to be more attuned to the love that's always with us yeah one mystic uses an image about our sins uh, and the, he said it's, our sins are like a drop of water falling on a fiery furnace like, mm. It's nothing to it. But I want to say something else that's important, though. In relative consciousness, our actions count and they matter. So the legal order, the moral order, the attitudinal order, all that is so important. This is so important. The issue is when we attribute that to having the final say in what love's about. See? But likewise, if we say, because I'm loved so, like Paul again, therefore should we sin all the more, God forbid. So it gives even more importance to being faithful and accountable and, and grounded in this paradoxical way of love. You know. These messages are all so subtle. They're just, they're just like right on the edge of, of things, aren't they? They are. Yeah. yeah. And really what she's saying is we're, we're right on the edge of it. Yeah. You know, it's really <laughs> the all-encompassing center of everything. And we're circling it. And she's drawing us in closer and closer to what's always there. But as we sit with her and let it sink in, then we, she's, well, she's teaching us trustworthy guidance. Turning to the mystics will continue in a moment. Explore art as a spiritual practice in the next issue of Wanting, the biannual journal from the Center for Action and Contemplation. Wanting, Art and Spirituality. 
features images and reflections from leading actors and musicians, including Scott Avitt, Josh Radner, Lourdes Bernard, and more. Get your copy today at cac.org slash oneingart. That's cac.org slash O-N-E-I-N-G-A-R-T. Have you taken an online course with the Center for Action and Contemplation? Explore the intersection of ancient wisdom and Jesus' teachings in The Divine Exchange, an online course featuring Cynthia Bourgeau. Fully embrace divine interaction each day, starting June 16th. Register today at cac.org slash online dash ed. That's cac.org slash O-N-L-I-N-E dash E-D. Before we return to this episode of Turning to the Mystics, I just wanted to warn you that something a little unusual and for me pretty embarrassing happens in this episode. But when Corey and I and Jim talked about it, we decided to leave it in because it's what really happened. And we all hope that it puts a smile on your face. Okay, back to the episode. Jim, shall we go to this uh, next section on page 227, the, the second paragraph? Yes. This seems to be part of the way she lives out this idea in her, in her own life, um, where she says, if, if we want to overcome our shame with great honours, we must clothe ourselves with ourselves. So adorned, I seek Jesus, my sweet Lord, and I find him so quickly by no other means as by those things that are repugnant and burdensome. One should very eagerly step forward with the intense desire, ashamed of one's guilt and with flowing love and humble fear. Then the filth of sin disappears from the divine sight of our Lord. And then lovingly he begins to cast his radiance toward the soul and she begins to dissolve out of a deeply felt love. The soul loses all her guilt and all her sorrow, and he begins to teach her his complete will. Then she begins to taste his sweetness, and he begins to greet her with his Godhead. (laughs) 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 That was doing so well. (laughs) Come on, you can do it. <laughs> you can do this. Okay. You, you, you can. You can oh my gosh. Okay. You, you can do this. Okay. <laughs> you take all this in. It's like a contemplative retreat at the nudist colony. You know what I mean? It's like you got to be able to take it all in and walk with it. So, That's right. Yeah. Take a deep breath. You can handle this. I can. I'm an adult woman. You are. Well, based on your laughter, you're getting there. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my dear. Okay. Okay. By the way, I want to say something about it, too. Okay. I I do. It's all all important. (laughs) No, go ahead. We're into it. Come on now. Okay. (laughs) You can still hear me, right? (laughs) I'm going to have to look away. Okay. (sighs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know what we could do? Without explaining it, I can read it. Okay. Well, I don't say, but it'd be just weird if you come on and read that part. <laughs> oh, that's true. That's, that's truly true. Okay. I can do this. Worst case, I can read it later with no one's here. Yeah, that's true. No, that's true. That, no, that's okay. true. That's, that's really I can do it. Too. Then she begins to taste his sweetness and he begins to greet her with his Godhead that the power of the Holy... <laughs> it's going to say penetrates. <laughs> you know what? Read this later, doesn't it, Kirsten? Kirsten, read it later. Okay, Corey. Okay. Corey. Oh, I was muted. Are Sorry. There? Oh. Can she read it later? Yeah, but I'm going to leave all this in. <laughs> It'll be good. No. <laughs> yeah, let's keep going. Yeah. It'll be good. Come on, Kirsten. Yeah, yeah. Matter of fact, let's do that. Let me do that. Yeah, Jim, I want to hear what you're going to say earlier for the listeners. Okay, here, okay. here. You know, Kirsten, in the midst of your laughter, let me help you out. I, I want to help you out a little bit, okay? And I want to walk through this. I also want to touch about what the laughter is about. First of all, I want to back up to the previous paragraph. And she says what she does when she goes to pray. This is what she does. And she says that when she goes to pray, I, the most wretched in person, meaning the wretchedness of my infidelities to love and so on as a love-filled person, go to my prayer. I deck myself out according to my worthlessness. I dress myself in the foul puddle that I myself am. Then I put on the shoes of precious time that I wasted day after day. Then I gird myself with the suffering I have caused. Then I put on the cloak of wickedness of which I am full. Then I put on my head a crown of secret shameful acts that I have committed against God. After this I take in my hand the mirror of true self-knowledge. Then I look my, at myself in it and see who I really am. Alas, I see nothing but utter misery. I prefer to wear these clothes rather than to have my wish regarding all earthly possessions. And yet they cause me such distress in my wretched fury that I would rather be clothed with hell and crowned with all the devils if this could happen through my no fault of mine. Alas, how very often do robbers of our own fickleness come and strip these clothes from us when we are pleased with ourselves and in our guilt declare ourselves innocent. I want to talk about this for a minute. Mm. I want to apply it to, I alluded to this in the talk too about uh, recovery and from AA, the 12 steps. It's so significant, I think, that it, when a person in the grips of their addiction, and they're dying of their addiction, in order to be admitted to the recovery community, they have to admit that they're finished. That if this is up to them, it, it's over for them. Because the alcoholic in them doesn't care about them, really. And they've tried and tried, and uh, they're being destroyed by the thing that gets through through the day. And so they begin by admitting it. But if the only way out is resource within themselves, that would be despair. Mm. But if they keep trying to pretend that they can find a resource in themselves to get past it, the confusion continues. But what if there's a better way? 
See, what if there's a way where a power greater than themselves can, re can achieve in them what they're powerless to achieve, provided they hand themselves over to the care of the higher power? See? So if you admit, you're admitted. If you don't admit, you're not admitted. Like this. And so what we do is, what do we admit? Like uh, the, the alcoholic doing a fearless inventory. You run down the list of your litany of things like this. But here's the thing about it. When you admit all these things, see, a fearless inventory, a fearful inventory is one where you're attributing authority to the litany of failings. That's mm -hmm. a fearful inventory. Mm -hmm. The fearless inventory is as the higher power listens, it doesn't care because it's in love with you. See? It's in love with you. It's the idolatry of thinking we are what's wrong with us. Mm over the love that takes us to itself in the midst of all the unfinished things that are still wrong with us. This is the deep sobriety. This is the really deep sobriety. And so it looks like a litany of, of self-shaming things yeah. is, is actually the pretense for setting up the irrelevancy of attributing authority to any of this in the light of this love that takes us to itself. Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. And she's saying this is where when, because when love touches suffering, the suffering turns love into mercy. Mm. And the mercy takes us to itself as mercy. St. Julian of Norwich, you know, his, his, his meaning was love. This is mercy. And that's what she's saying. And she says, so what happens, very often do robbers of our own fickleness come and strip these clothes from us. We keep trying to pose in posture uh -huh. and build up some basis for ourselves, and they rob us of the mystery of this infinite love that takes us to itself and our nothingness without God by attributing some kind of pretense or posture. And we should be very careful of this fickleness. Mm. On what do we base our worth? Do we base it on the infinite love that loves us so and shines out or not? And I think that's the deep thing that she's getting at here. And Jim, do you think this is a, a practice we should regularly engage in, like the way she's gone through it here, like to, to go through our days and focus on things that we <laughs> might, yeah. might want to confess or, yeah? Well, I, I do. See, in other words, why? it isn't like this. It isn't as if we underline and say, that's a beautiful thought. You know, what's yeah. for lunch? See. <laughs> Because here's another way of looking at it. I think we should practice this all the time. First of all, with each other, and with ourselves, and with God. I'll, I'll use an example that we use. Imagine parents uh, with a child is just learning how to talk. And its very first efforts to say words. The parents don't laugh at the child or make fun of it. Mm. See, by its awkward way of trying to but the very, the very uh, littleness of the child and the sincerity of saying it uh, accesses the parents and breaks their heart open with love. They get down and hold and give the child a mm -hmm. hug. And that's the way God sees us. So where, where am I in my life, within myself, finding the ways that I've based my self-confidence on my achievements or do I attribute authority on my stumbling places to have the power that I name who I am? And how can I ask God for the grace to establish myself in this infinite love that utterly transcends my foibles and when I accept them as the opening through which God takes me to God? Likewise, what is the attainments, by the way, my gifts that God gave me? But how are my very attainments transparent 
to the infinite attainment of God that's infinitely beyond my attainments. So I'm grateful to let God use me through my attainments. And I'm grateful to let, I think we should always be trying to practice this. Mm-hmm. Where am I in my marriage? Where two people, they settle for these, these rituals of pretending they do with each other. And they're mm-hmm. not happy with it. They're not happy. And where am I, am I in collusion with this half-hearted ritual of avoiding things that need to be looked at, need to be said? Where am I afraid to step forward and admit something? And even admit that it's so hard to admit it. See? What's that say? And I think we should do this. Yeah. I really yeah. do. And so, so for example, we should step forward with desire and shame. And here's what's very interesting. All of a sudden she moves into the sexual imagery. And I, I think Corey and I and all the listeners hope you're not ashamed that you couldn't stop laughing. No. <laughs> Because that's McTell's point. <laughs> that's what's so disarmingly delightful that you, that you laughed. <laughs> See, because you're, we could all feel how you were trying to hold it together and you just couldn't do it. You couldn't do it. But I want to say what the sexual imagery is about. Well, it'd, be, it'd be great if you read it for the listeners, Jim. Okay, good. I'll, I'll read it. Then I want to say what I think it's about. Mm-hmm. Are you going to read the whole paragraph? I will. I'll just read this section. If we want to overcome our shame with great honors, we must clothe ourselves with ourselves, the true knowledge of what we're really like. So adorned myself as I am, I seek Jesus, my sweet Lord, and find him so quickly by no other means as by those things that are repugnant and burdensome to me. So I want to use the example of you laughing. You could say it's burdensome because you were trying so hard not to do it. See? And so with no other means by those very things, but by the acceptance, you couldn't stop laughing. Mm-hmm. See? She says it's where the sweet Lord enters through the acceptance of it because it's, it's humanity. It's humanity of you. One should eagerly step forward with intense desire, ashamed, ashamed of one's guilt, and I think ashamed of one's guilt is this, a shame that one's attributing, one feels guilty over the weakness one couldn't get past, mm. and one's ashamed of it. Mm-hmm. And with flowing love and humble fear, then the filth of sin disappears from the divine sight of the Lord. And then lovingly, he begins to cast his radiance toward the soul, and she begins to dissolve out of deeply felt love. Now, here's the imagery, and I want to use this in, in marital sexual intimacy and committed sexual intimacy. That when two people are physically intimate and they deeply love each other, there's something so disarmingly intimate and vulnerable about it. It's like the yoga of the body being unveiled in, in ways that are beyond words, it's beyond explanations, it's beyond, it's just that. It bodies itself forth with the sheer intimacy of the self-disclosures of the body and begins to dissolve out of a deeply felt love. The two people dissolve in the love. The soul loses all her guilt and all her sorrow and begins, and he begins to teach her his complete will. The two people in this surrender learn together and taste together the sweetness of love and the intimacy of their mutual self-giving to each other. In all of its details, it's utterly unique to them, whatever that is. 
Then she begins to taste his sweetness, and he begins to greet her with his Godhead. So in one sense, it's intercourse. It's easier with the God to greet her. That the power of the Holy Trinity penetrates her fully, soul and her body. Rollo May once said in sexual fantasies, the fantasy isn't orgasm, it's penetration. It's oneness. Could it be in physically, it's to be in and of and one. So it's the sacramentality of the body and the act that God creates and symbolizes as this. And she receives true wisdom. And the two people learn together in marriage what love's all about in unexplainable ways. And then they hope to carry that closeness throughout the day and sensitivities to how they touch each other, look at each other, care about each other. And it's, it's woven into the rhythms of everything they do to e with, with each other. And then he, and so here he's saying that there's a kind of a union of love. This, this, uh, with the infinite love of God in our body and our soul, that it takes on a sense of rapture or takes on a sense of surrendered oneness. Our whole being is caught up in it. Wisdom. And then he, God, begins to caress her, and she becomes weak. So she's, he's, God's caressing her in this intimate moment, and God caressing her, her knees buckle. She gets all, she melts, she, and she becomes weak with love. She so begins to drink it all in that God becomes, he becomes lovesick for her. So it's her, her very melting in the love that melts God's love for her, and he becomes lovesick for her. And this is where she's saying the other passage, you know, you freely chose to be so lovesick. Oh, God's, God's so revealed to me that God has so freely chosen to be so infinitely in love with me. God honestly doesn't know if God could ever handle being God without me. And she said, take me home with you, I'll be your physician forever. And so, under sexual imagery is really the mystical dimensions of the realities of human sexuality. Sincerely mm. experiences a sacrament of this. But she's saying that's a sacrament of this love that's now un understood interiorly within ourselves. And notice, you can't uh, make love in a distant, neat way. You can't make love on the other side of the room in some neat... It, you, there has to be a mutual falling in to it together. And she said, God's like that with prayer. It's like this. And then she says, because I, he becomes so lovesick, then he begins to limit the intensity because he knows better her limits than she herself. He knows you can't stand it. It's too much. Have, you have all eternity to do this. See? And he knows you're just melting away. So on purpose, God backs off on the intensity because you have to tie your shoes and go to work. <laughs> I mean, you, have to, you have to live your life. So it's on purpose God distances the intensity of the union. But by the way, it's always there, breath unto breath. It's always there. What's, what we're talking about are gradations of the intensity. We experience the oneness. It's always there. So, and then she begins longing to show him great faithfulness. And then he begins to give her full knowledge. And see, this is the true gnosis the deep knowledge of the substance of the infinite, uh, the infinite mystery of love that permeates our powerlessness. It's an amazing passage, mm -hmm. really, it and is. So Jim, is this, would this be describing in metaphor what happens with the bound love, like what happens in the soul, kind of that, 
that surrendering over and that meeting place and the... Yeah, here's my understanding of it, I think so. Let's say when we hear this talk, we can all look back at moments in our life where we tasted something of this. Not only a unique way, something of it. And let's say then, we also trust our intuition, that in that moment we tasted something of which she speaks. We know that in that moment, it isn't as if something more was given to us, but a curtain open and the infinite love that's the true nature of every moment, including this one, was revealed. See? Mm -hmm. And that's how I think we walk with this. See, that's what I mean by having faith in the revelatory nature in our moments of awakening. And they reveal and lay bare the depths that's always there in every moment. But unless there's a daily rendezvous in prayer or daily rendezvous in constantly renewing vulnerability and truthfulness in our relationships, it can slip away. Yeah. So yeah. we're always keeping the edges of the fidelity wide open to keep it stabilized and so we can like that, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. Beautiful. Shall we go on to the last section? Yes, let's do. Now, dear fellow, there are still two more things that you must guard against with holy zeal, for they have never borne fruit. The first is that a man or woman wants to accomplish much in pursuing great deeds and fine conduct in order to achieve a high church office. Such an attitude vexes my soul. When such people have then achieved power, their baseness becomes so many faceted that no one who voted for them with great enthusiasm is happy with them. They then become misguided by honours and their false virtues turn into vices. The second is when a person is chosen rightfully with no meddling on his part and then changes so completely that he never feels the urge to leave this office. This is a sign of many failings, for even if he is irresponsible irreproachable in it, he should still be fearful and humble. A sincere woman and a good man who after my death would have liked to talk with me but cannot should read this little book. Yeah, I think this is so important that she ended this way because it reveals that she didn't live in this love. It's some ethereal celestial place dualistically other than the concreteness of her own lived responsibilities. And in other passages in the book, which we didn't read, where they kind of chose her as a begin to be kind of a, the, uh, to lead the group, the community. And she talks about difficulties with personalities in the group. So all this is lived out in the realities, the push and the pull of everyday life. Yeah. Like yeah. And here, and although she's looking specifically at the church, you can see this is also true of politics, of society, and so on, but specifically of the church where someone is chosen for a leadership position in the church because they exemplify this holiness or this thing. And then over time, they got seduced by empire or by power or by, or, and they drifted far from it like this. And uh, it's the brokenness of leadership, of, of spiritual leadership in the church. And then how to say that and be honest with that and, and so forth. Likewise, there's someone who comes in uh, and is chosen in leadership in the church. They come in and they stay, but they stay long past their ability to effectively be able to perform their duties. And they won't leave. 
to the only. So she's just pointing out that, that all this happens in the ongoing endless brokenness of the human condition. Yeah. And there and these two things aren't dualistically other than each other. They're woven together, like this, like the day by day. Yeah. I mean, she has this amazing paragraph on this metaphorical love connection, and then the next paragraph is on these very practical. It's all woven together with her. It's, it's beautiful. And way. here's what I think, too, is that um, I think on one level, let's say in our quieter moments, we can be in the love place. And then we go out and face the stress of the day. And we get caught up in people and politics and so on. And we actually get caught up in it. We do get caught up in it. We do our best. But then when we come back the next day when we're in our quiet place, we can get regrounded in the quiet place of love. Look how we did yesterday, like examination of conscience. And ask for the grace that when we head out to face it one more time, we can be a little more grounded in the middle of it, that God not, not lose our balance so much and not become part of the problem like this and, and do what's asked of us to do that. I think that's true. And also to know, this I mean by the bittersweet alchemy, that somehow there's something holy about that. Mm -hmm. There's something holy about the interplay of the concreteness of the real world, uh, ribbon through this love and this love through the real world, and she's so real like this. Yeah, beautiful. And I guess because she, she's knowing she's leaving this book behind, because she, she encourages people who would want to talk to her to read the book, so she's trying to offer some guidance um, yeah. for people who, who would come to her. Yeah, and by the way, it helps to understand, now notice how she started the book, she starts out, really, God's the one who's writing it, like she's yes. taking it down. And then yes. she says, I suggest understand it that you read it nine times. Yes. Remember that? Yes. Now you can see why. Yeah, see? yeah. Because there's no end to it. It goes round and round. You really could spend the rest of your life sitting and walking with it, and it goes deeper, deeper, deeper. Yeah. Well, shall we move to the final section? Yes. You read from the last couple of pages of Book 7, and so starting on 335, um, and this is a conversation between the soul and the body to begin. Yes, yes. So the soul says, uh, Dearest prison in which I have been bound, I thank you especially for being obedient to me. Though I was often unhappy because of you, you nevertheless came to my aid. On the last day, all your troubles will be taken from you. Then we shall no longer complain then everything that God has done with us will suit us just fine if you will now only stand fast and keep hold of sweet hope. Obedience is a holy bond. It binds the soul to God and the body to Jesus and the five senses to the Holy Spirit. The longer it binds, the more the soul loves. The less the body preserves itself, the fairer its works shine before God and before people of goodwill. Yeah. You know, I, when I shared the talk on this, uh, toward the end of her life, she lived in the Cistercian convent, mm -hmm. Cistercian nuns, and uh, she became completely physically incapacitated, and she went blind, and she couldn't feed herself, couldn't clothe herself. She was completely dependent on the nuns. And this whole experiential sense of God's love completely went away. Yeah. That's what's so, amazing. It, it, it's so stunning. And so the yeah. last two books, she dictated them because she couldn't write. She couldn't write. 
And so she comes full circle. And just like she speaks of the epitome of the raptures of love, it comes full circle. It meets the epitome of suffering and loss. Yeah. And the, the, two side, the two points of the circle touch each other. And she bears, it's kind of stunning, yes. really. It's so moving this way. And she finds it, she said, if God wants me to be a blind, uh, helpless woman who can't experience God, so be it. And there she's joining the poverty of the whole world. It's also like the holiness of being bereft of a sense of God. I think it gives a lot of credibility to her teaching on bound love, that it it's does, beyond it the senses. Yeah, that's very, yes. Because she's living, she's living connected to the bound love, and even though she's not experiencing it in her senses. Yeah, that's very good. I think it's really true. Because we might put it this way, she might say, is that God, God is the infinity of the mystery of the oneness of her inability to experience God. God's the infinity of her inability. God's the infinity of the mystery of her blindness. Because even though she can't physically see, she can clearly see in a mm -hmm. deeper way. Years mm -hmm. ago, I was leading a retreat. Uh, this was back before the internet and, and all this stuff. And, and uh, they had a little gathering at the beginning of the weekend retreat. And I was sitting in the library of the retreat house. It was like a little social. And I looked down, and here it was the big book of AA in Braille. And I thought, what would that be to be a blind alcoholic? See, And some people can see so deeply because they can't physically see. see? And some people have 20-20 vision, they don't see so well. So you can see, although she was blind, see, how deeply she could see. see. And although she was incapacitated, the, power, like the, the, the depth of power she holds. And I also think it helps under, understand our own aging process and the weakness of our own death and the passing away of things and learn to trust that and flow with that and be open to that because it's all woven into the mystery because we believe in faith that death is the gate of heaven. We believe in faith that we're eternal. Like that. So anyway, just... It's just, so stunning the way she has her own soul speak this way and to the body and says, calls the we, then we, the soul and the body. It's, it's like, it's the, the hope. You've said so many times, Jim, how you die alone. Um, and so there's the hope that our own souls will be there to comfort us on the way, yes. on the way through. You know what I like about it too? Notice how we have an ongoing, interesting relationship with our body. Sometimes the relationship is complicated. I don't want to bring up your laughter again. It can be embarrassing. Like the body takes over in different ways. Please sometimes don't bring it up. Sometimes it's after, I won't, it's, but I, I wanted to. Uh, but the, the, uh, the thing is, too, is sometimes the relationship is delightful. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's amazing. Sometimes it's a, and it, part of the spirituality is somehow God's relationship with us is embodied in the subtleties of the way we relate to our body, which is the embodiment of the deep yoga of the holiness of the body. And, but yes, I so like, love Mictelled really. She's mm -hmm. really just so encouraging and deep and beautiful. Yeah. And especially the way she lived it out in her life, like as, as this, a leader of the community and then as someone who lost touch it, with God's presence in her senses but maintained that connection in her soul and li right. lived that way. And beautiful. I think there's another lesson here about these mystics too. For, and you look at all the mystics, it's really played out in our life. You know how we're living our life and uh, God's ribbon through our life and through our death. And uh, that's why it's always 
uh, when we finish our quiet time in prayer, we ask God for the grace not to break the thread of that because the unfolding of the day is the incarnate presence of God's oneness with us. And we learn to become ever clearer about that and believe in it. And, yeah. Anyway. Lovely. Good. Well, I'm taking away those, a couple of one-liners from this one that I love this one, um, that we come to God, we clothe ourselves with ourselves. Yeah. I just love that. There's yeah. something so freeing about that, but also um, challenging, challenging and freeing. Yeah, beautiful. And then I also love the line, uh, may God thus bind us all. As a matter of fact, you know, when I read the mystics, uh, you could go through Mictel and uh, if you had colored markers mm -hmm. and in red, underline the one-liners that you just think are stunning. Then in yellow, underline the words that shed light on your own heart. And then another color where the question lies. Because if you would line up all those one-liners like a mantra, see, and say them out like a litany, like a way to pray, and like, so the way these mystics talk is so amazing. Mm -hmm. Really, it's such a poetic, so, it just anyway. cuts through so much, doesn't it? Does. It, it, just, and hits it you, cut, hits you in those deep It does. Places. It cuts through yeah. explanations, through definitions. It goes right. It's like that. It's just yeah, it's stunning. Yeah. Great. Beautiful. So, Jim, uh, we're coming to the end of our of, of the sessions you've been offering. I we're going to do a coaching session next time, but I just want to thank you for all you've offered um, from MacTilde and the beautiful passages you chose. And uh, it's just been a real gift. And... Uh, so thank you for today. No, you're very welcome. And I'm grateful for the gift to be able to share this with you and with all the listeners. It's been a gift to me also. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning to the Mystics, a podcast created by the Center for Action and Contemplation. We're planning to do episodes that answer your questions. So if you have a question, please email us at podcasts at cac.org or send us a voicemail at cac.org forward slash voicemails. All of this information can be found in the show notes. We'll see you again soon. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.